Hey patrons, Mike here, just dropping a very brief introduction before we unleash this little bonus mini-sode for y'all. Basically, it is just to drum up a little bit of interest and hopefully some support in our patron page. The back half of it is going to be like 10 minutes cut from our latest bonus episode, one of which we do every month for our patrons. This one is on Mom and Dad, which is a really fun and bonkers Nick Cage and Selma Blair movie. Uh, Lindsay and I were joined by the host of the Caged In podcast, Petros. Super fun discussion on this movie, and it's just a little bit of a taste of what we kind of bring every month with our bonus show. However, what we're going to do is we're going to kick things off with something that we're going to add once we hit a $150 a month in patron money. Lindsay is a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic, and she has agreed to drop at least one review, possibly two, depending on the tier that you're at every month, um, exclusively for our patrons. So it will be like a 10 to 15 minute bonus show where she will kind of give her thoughts and her critique on some of the latest genre films that are coming out. And as you know, there's a ton of great stuff out there. So it's really cool having a critic like Lindsay come and say, hey, this is what's worth your while right now. So the goal is once we hit $150 a month in patron money, those reviews will start to go up every month. Currently, we're about two-thirds of the way towards hitting that goal and then putting this up. And we have other stuff planned as once we hit this goal, the new thing will go up. Basically, we want to bring more content to our most fervent listeners. So how can you do this? Well, just go to patreon.com backslash the pod and the pendulum. Sign up to become a patron today. Two bucks at a minimum gets you the bonus show every month. And then we have other stuff going from there at five and ten bucks. We'll also put a link to that in the notes so it'll be easy peasy to click and sign on today. All right, enough of me blathering right now. Let's get on with the mini-sode, and thank you for listening. subscribers i have something a little bit different for you today on the pod and the pendulum um we are talking about adding some film reviews to our patron tiers and i wanted to give you a little bit of a taste a little bit of a sample of what i can offer you so for those of you who don't know about me um aside from being a podcaster who delivers bi-weekly episodes and sometimes more of the pot and the pendulum. I also am a film critic, so a lot of my time is spent doing film criticism, and I thought that I could probably bring some of that to uh, you, to you the listener. So what we thought we would do today is basically a trial run. Let's bang out a film review of something new, give it to you all, and see if you like it, see if you want more. So if that sounds interesting to you, 
please uh, listen to the rest and feel free to give us feedback in our Facebook group, um, facebook.com slash pod in the pendulum, uh, or on our Twitter at pod and pendulum. And uh, let us know what you think or me on Twitter, smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S. Let me know what you think and if this is something that you would subscribe for. So I'm really excited about the movie that I'm chatting with you about today. I am chatting about Ben Collins, Luke Petrowski's, and David Bruckner's The Night House. So it was written by Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski and directed by David Bruckner. And uh, it is a 2020 film um, because it made its festival rounds, which is actually hitting theaters officially August 20th, 2021 in the US. Um, This movie is is wicked. I kind of don't really know where to start. And I think that's a good thing. So it stars Rebecca Hall as a woman named Beth. And Beth is essentially a woman reeling from the sudden loss of her husband, uh, who died by suicide. So we meet Beth at a time where she's in a house she doesn't want to be in. It appears to be her weekend home, a lake house. She's a little bit uncomfortable, seems a little bit unsettled. And we slowly learn that she is reeling from this sudden loss that she didn't expect. The people around her um, are Claire and a man named Mel. So Claire is played by Sarah Goldberg, uh, who you might recognize from Barry. Um, She is such a phenomenal actress. She plays a really great actress in the show, Barry. So obviously she's very great at giving dynamic performances. Um, And we've got Vondi Curtis Hall as Mel. Um, And he is a man who lives uh, or has a house in the same area as Beth does and that she shared with her husband, Owen. So this is kind of her support system as Beth slowly starts to descend into wondering what really happened with Owen and getting these feelings of being haunted. So she's waking up in the middle of the night, hearing music playing, getting strange text messages from Owen. But when she checks her phone the next morning, the text messages aren't there. And when she finds Owen's phone and digs through it, uh, those text messages aren't there from his end either. As she digs through Oren, uh, as she digs through Owen's phone, she starts to find things like pictures of other women that look a lot like her. And she starts to become suspicious of Owen and uh, what he might have been doing, uh, who he might have really been, and if she knew him at all. She digs through some of his old sketches. Uh, he actually built this house, the, uh, the titular night house. And she digs through some of his sketches and notices that he's got some strange ideas about mirror-flipped houses and evil, and uh, he's got some books about keeping dark presences at bay. And it's kind of unclear whether something was haunting Owen or something is haunting Beth, or if it's both, if Owen was protecting Beth from something that was haunting her. It's a beautiful tale, and if it doesn't seem obvious already, it is ghosts uh, standing in for mental illness. So there are tons of movies that use things like ghosts and haunts as an allegory for um, mental illness or, quote, descents into madness. And this is one that should be in the Hall of Fame. (laughs) I compare it sometimes to movies like The Babadook, um, which is another uh, movie where The Babadook stands in for potentially a woman uh, dealing with mental illness. And that's a very fair and apt comparison here I would say. The movie does keep you guessing, however. There is no moment where you're like, is this real? Um, Or sorry, there are many moments where you're like, is this real? Is this fake? Is this in her head? Is she being gaslit? Is there a presence? Who is it haunting? Is she just not accepting reality and what's happening? And it does in a really subtle and gentle way such that 
Even though you're guessing, you're never trying to explain away what's happening as she's just crazy. And I think that's something that can be really hard to balance. I think suicide and mental illness are often handled with no filter and with no glove um, in horror and elsewhere. And what I think is really stunning about this movie is its ability to be very, very gentle with Beth while still pulling Beth through the ringer. Like, Beth goes through hell. She goes through shit in this movie. She gets... She gets beaten down by a ghost that is haunting her, potentially. Um, But it still manages to be very gentle with her. It never judges her. It never makes her look completely, you know, crazy. This, like, crazy shrieking woman. Um, You always are looking at Beth in a way that you sympathize with her. And you're... She's never judged. And the things that are manifesting and hurting her aren't throwing her around and smashing her around and beating her up in a way that is over the top and, uh, you know, verbose, if that makes any sense in this context. So I really think that that's what is really beautiful and striking about this movie. Um, Claire, who again is played by Sarah Goldberg, actually gets just enough to do to remind us of how important support systems can be in these situations. So Claire plays the friend who kind of pops in and out. She makes sure that Beth gets home after drinking too much and she pops in to check on her. And she's she's not a main character in this movie at all. She's maybe in, you know, a few minutes total, maybe 20 minutes total tops. Um, but she gets enough to do that to kind of remind us as people what a support system like Claire can do and also how a support system like Claire can get really hurt, which I think is uh, really interesting. Same with the character played by Mel. Mel doesn't get a ton to do either. He's sometimes an exposition dump in that he knows a little bit more that was happening with Owen than Beth does and Beth is kind of kept in the dark. But by being a little bit cryptic and withholding information, you start to feel the paranoia that Rebecca, or excuse me, that Beth, played by Rebecca Hall, is feeling. So Mel does a really great job of being that character that's an exposition dump and also very protective, but enough to kind of steer Beth in a way that she kind of goes off the rails. There's a lot of really cool symbolism and beautiful imagery. I mean, we're talking about houses on a lake with a really beautiful canoe that's, I don't even know if it's a canoe, let's say a rowboat that is, uh, you know, wooden with blue accents put up against blood in this like sparkly lake. And it's really, really beautiful. A lot of scenes in this movie, specifically that beautiful tone, are really reminiscent of uh, Gerald's game. And not just because it has that, kind of similar to directing style to what we know from Mike Flanagan. So if you know Mike Flanagan, he made Dr. Sleep. He made uh, a lot of the horror that um, was like massively famous in the past five years. So Oculus, uh, Ouija Origin of Evil, Hush. um, And he also famously worked on The Haunting of Hill House. So that style might be really obvious to you, but this movie has a very Stephen King vibe in a way that I really associate specifically with Gerald's game and the film adaptation by Mike Flanagan. In appearance and tone, and also in the imagery of shadows that kind of represent these background beings. So if you are someone who is haunted by seeing your bookshelf at night and thinking that that bookshelf looks a little bit like a ghost, this movie is absolutely going to set you off, uh, as it did me. So if that's you, definitely bring your blanket for protection. Um, but yeah, again, that's what makes this film incredibly stunning and beautiful. Um, while it's always an allegory, this movie really keeps you guessing as to what is a haunt, uh, and the true identity of Beth's husband, Owen. 
It's spooky by way of movies like Coherence, Hereditary, The Babadook that I already mentioned, and also Oculus, which I already mentioned. So ultimately what I think this is, is a beautiful, beautiful feature. As far as how scary it is, it is scary. Again, it'll have you looking over your shoulder to see if those things at the corner of your eye are actually, you know, ghosts or monsters or just a, a couple bookshelves that are lined up in a really inopportune way. There's some really quality jump scares, but the jump scares work really well because of the sound design. A lot of the jump scares uh, come with music playing um, or sometimes in-world music and out-of-world music. So when I say that, sometimes it's the score and sometimes it is the radio turning on inside Beth's house. And the sound is really what drives these jump scares home. Also, what's really driven home is the moments with Beth. Rebecca Hall is a stunning actress and she gives so much very subtly. Her manner of speaking is really calm and cool, and she's singing some really dark, scary, spooky things. Um, And her performance is just really uh, a huge part of what carries this movie across the line. So in case it's not obvious, I love this movie. I absolutely recommend it. I spent a lot of time thinking about how I wanted to rate these movies for you. I'm not someone who likes to do five stars. I'm not someone who likes to do thumbs up. So I thought that what I would do is rate the movie by telling you how I think you should watch it. So instead of a rating, I'm going to give you some watch instructions. So how do I want you to watch this movie? Well, I think this is a Friday evening for a good scare type of movie. This is the kind of movie that I would tell you to watch alone. The movie is really scary, but it's intimate. So it's the type of movie that you'll want to be left alone to sit and watch. Um, and experience and be enveloped in. If you happen to have a summer home or a place by a lake or a cabin, even better. But I think this is the kind of movie that is worth giving your Friday or Saturday night to, worth watching at night, and and worth kind of having that one-on-one moment with. That said, the jump scares tend to be really great for communal watches. So if you are someone that is too freaked out or has a friend that you want to watch this movie with, it's still going to be worth doing because I think the jump scares will have will be like a lot of fun for your group of friends. So that's it. That's my thoughts on The Night House coming August 20th, 2021 to theaters. I hope you like this. Like I said, I'd really love to hear your feedback and what you think of me doing reviews as part of a patron bonus, what sorts of reviews you would want, and what you think of my uh, rating structure in lieu of rating. So focusing on, on, I guess, Nick Cage for just a moment, uh, I'll pose it to both of you, because I think you have both have a greater appreciation for Nick Cage in genre films specifically than I do. What do you think it is about his performance or even just appearance in genre films that has allowed him to build this very loyal and it's larger than a cult following to call it a cult following is unfair, but I think there are, a certain like Nick Cage and genre films has seems to have become a subgenre in and of itself <laughs> in horror. <laughs> yeah, I think him. And I mean that in a positive way. Um, what do you think it is about his performances here that endear him to audiences so much? Um, I think he's like super underestimated. I honestly think that he's gonna have, and I mean by audiences, not by um filmmakers. Like, I think he's going to have this, like, renaissance that we're going to see, like, Keanu Reeves. 
Um, I was thinking about it because, uh, you know, Cage obviously just um, did Pig, which is getting him a lot of acclaim as an actor specifically. Um, and the movie itself is getting a lot of acclaim. And I feel like, oh, it turns out he's a good actor. And it's like, yeah, he is. Like, go back through his filmography. He's got a very, very wicked breadth of roles. So, like, he's absolutely a stellar actor. And he made some, like, weird, bizarre choices. But, like, who's amongst us? Um, and I, I, like, really think that it's going to give him his, like, uh, John Wick moment in a way where like for years everyone just like hated Keanu Reeves and made fun of what a bad actor he was and now suddenly everyone pretends like that just like never happened like we always loved Keanu Reeves and no one was ever mean to him which like what everyone was like haha didn't you see him in that in the Giant Dracula and... and you're like he's amazing <laughs> you just that's not anyway I love Keanu Reeves and I'll defend, I, I guess, I guess maybe I'm just like, you know, it's a sore spot. Anyway, I feel like that's what's going to happen with, uh, with uh, Nick Cage next. Like, I think he's next and we're all going to be like, oh, we always knew we loved him. We never made fun of his performance. It's like, okay. For me, it feels like sure. his, like, <laughs> his career as a whole is like inextricably linked to, to this kind of renaissance that we're getting. And it's the kind of passion he has for, yeah. like, all caps acting. Do you know what I mean? Like, he isn't afraid to just act, like, show you, like, yeah. here are the strings. Like, I am almost like this marionette puppet. Like, this, this is what I'm doing. And I think that really lends itself to genre filmmaking. And I know he's very vocal about the fact that, like, stuff like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are some of, like, his favourite films. And, it like, 1987 for me, I think, is that kind of, like, pivotal year for, for Nick Cage because I think you've got, like, the the free punch of Moonstruck, Raising Arizona and Vampire's Kiss were all filmed in that year. And it's like, it kind of gives you a uh, an idea of who Nick Cage would become. And, and I think the most, in, especially genre film, the most interesting one of those three is Vampire's Kiss. And like, I guess that teeters on the, yeah, that, that's horror or horror adjacent at least. Like, and I think that very much is, I don't know. It plants the seeds of like he's he he can he can do this kind of borderline. I think you mentioned it, Lindsay. Of like it's there's comedy to it, but it's also like terrifying at the same time. And I think because he yeah is not afraid to he I don't, he doesn't want to hide behind the character almost. He will act, and I think that's what like makes him endearing to like horror audiences. Yeah, I love the way you described it, like all caps. Um, and like, it's so true. And I think when I think about like his more recent genre stuff, like I know people didn't like Willy's Wonderland. I really did because it's like exactly what I wanted. The night that I watched it, it was exactly what I wanted. You know, like if I watched it again, I might be like, oh, Lindsay. But um, it was like the day that I watched it, it's, it just like did what I needed it to do. Um, but I kind of think of like Mandy, Color Out of Space, and this movie. I think they all came out like close-ish together, and they were kind of his like. Now he's the genre guy who like all your friends either loved one of those three movies. I do think this one got talked about the least of the three, mm -hmm. but I certainly think it used him the best of the three. Like yeah. by a landslide, I think I try to think about um, like you know the cagiest cage ever, and I think a lot of people said that about Color Out of Space. And there's like that moment in his car where he like freaks out and yells. And that to me was like a funny moment in a serious movie that just like didn't work for me. But then I think about him losing it in this movie where he's ramming at the door and he's like, open the door, you motherfuckers. And I think it is like the perfect 
cage moment. Like that is the cagiest cage ever. He goes completely over the top, but it works in the tone of the film. It's funny. It's scary. And it's like him. And I feel like that's a huge part of what I love about this movie is like him being the cagiest cage I've ever seen. It's funny that you make the Keanu Reeves comparison, because honestly, when I was trying to put my thoughts together for this episode, that's the same performer that came up, that came to mind. Um, And I think the difference is like Nicolas Cage prior to making this pivot to genre films was an extremely respected actor. I mean, he has a, he has an Oscar for best, uh, best male lead in leaving Las Vegas. He's worked with Scorsese. He's worked against Cher. Um, He has this body of work where if he just stopped acting at the turn of the century, he would probably be considered one of the top performers of his generation. And I think as much as we love Keanu Reeves, I think we all know like as long as Keanu Reeves like stays (laughs) in his lane type of thing. And it can be a wider, it can be a wider lane. I'm not saying that it has to be like a one way, like narrow dirt bike track. The guy got his start in Shakespearean stage plays. So everyone's all like, Oh, he can only do one thing like pretty well. (laughs) Like, no, (laughs) but we've seen when he like expands out that it doesn't always work in his, and I'm not saying that Keanu is a piss poor actor. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if you compare the two of them, I think you could say that Cage would be because they're relatively close to being peers um, with Reeves Mm. maybe starting a little bit later in filmography than than Cage did, that Cage would you could legitimately call one of the best actors of his generation. I don't think you can make that argument against Keanu Reeves. And that's not saying that he's poor or terrible, but it's just by comparison. I think they do really. Yeah, I think they, they do. The comparable actor I've always drawn the line between is Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe because they 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 will they will make that Mm. transition between high art low art kind of like whatever you blockbusters they will they will kind of do whatever and it's like they they both kind of seem like wild men and they kind of started off around the same time and yeah Mm -hmm. I think those two those two are the 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 kind of at closest linked. Yeah, I think that's apt. So I guess that led me to part two of this before we kind of dive more into like Brian Taylor and the movie itself is like what, this is what confounds me about Nick Cage and maybe where I have my biggest issue issue with him is when I think of like the genre output of the last decade, I wonder like how much of his, how much of his performances are him inhibiting, inhabiting a character and playing a role versus him playing like Nick Cage, the persona and how much of this is him winking at the audience versus how much of it is him doing actual work. I, I, it's kind of slightly difficult for me because like, because I've spoken to so many people he's worked with. There's almost this thing of like, I know that he comes to every project with just like notes and like, he loves he loves the he loves acting and he loves the projects themselves. So I don't think there is a lot of like stunt casting and stuff like that. And there's like I know I know I know you might have like a big issue with Mandy and stuff like that. But I, I feel like that film, especially like that that moment that kind of gets pulled out and the clip gets played of him freaking out in the bathroom. Like I have a phrase on my podcast where I call it like an earned freak out because like in that 
instance, and, and the same applies for mum and dad. It's like in the kind of uh, narrative of the world and the kind of rules of that world and what's happened before in the plot, they make sense. And it's like the way Cage is acting in mum and dad, like this kind of un- unexplained need to kill his children makes entire sense and the way he behaves in Mandy especially that 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 specific scene which kind of gets laughed at and and a lot of people think it is like Cage winking at the camera but like the beginning half of that film he's like he's very somber and like he shows you the kind of range that he can do like Ser- you know what I mean? He can play a goofball as well, and I think he, he some of that go- goes over into um, Color Out of Space as well. I think like some of the most interesting bits of Color Out of Space is when he's not playing the horror; he's mm-hmm. playing just the goofy dad. I find that more a far, far more interesting because that like whereas I don't, I, I don't I don't know I don't feel like he is the closest he probably comes to it is is something like Willy's Wonderland, but I, I don't know like I, maybe I'm. I've got my blinders up because I'm kind of under the cage spell, but I I, I like to think that like he takes the roles because he he likes them, and I think yeah we're seeing that especially now with the kind of the release of Pig and the kind of how that is not not anything like these kind of freak out roles, and as much as that film could have been very much pushed in that direction by his star power. Mm -hmm. hope you like this and i hope that i get to do more for you okay thanks check you all in the next one